the sun, the moon, the stars. I'm not a bad guy. I know how that sounds. Defensive, unscrupulous, but it's true. I'm like everybody else, weak, full of mistakes, but basically good. Magdalena disagrees, though. She considers me a typical Dominican man, a sucio, an asshole. See, many months ago when Magda was still my girl, when I didn't have to be careful about almost anything, I cheated on her with this chick who had tons of 80s freestyle hair. Didn't tell Magda about it either. You know how it is. A smelly bone like that better off buried in the backyard of your life. Magda only found out because homegirl wrote her a fucking letter, and the letter had details. Shit you wouldn't even tell your boys drunk. Thing is, that particular bit of stupidity had been over for months. Me and Magda were on an upswing. We weren't as distant as we'd been the winter I was cheating. The freeze was over. She was coming over to my place instead of us hanging with my knucklehead boys, me smoking, her bored out of her skull. We were seeing movies driving out to different places to eat, even caught a play at the crossroads, and I took her picture with some big-wig black playwrights. Pictures where she's smiling so much, you would think her wide-ass mouth was going to unhinge. We were a couple again, visiting each other's families on the weekends, eating breakfast at diners hours before anybody else was up, rummaging through the New Brunswick library together, the one Carnegie built with his guilt money. A nice rhythm we had going, But then the letter hits like a Star Trek grenade and detonates everything. Past, present, future. Suddenly, her folks want to kill me. It don't matter that I help them with their taxes two years running or that I mow their lawn. Her father, who used to treat me like his hijo, calls me an asshole on the phone. Sounds like he's strangling himself with the cord. You no deserve I speak to you in Spanish, he says. I see one of Magda's girlfriends at the Woodbridge Mall, Clarabelle, the Equatoriana with the biology degree and the chinita eyes, and she treats me like I ate somebody's favorite kid. You don't even want to hear how it went down with Magda, like a five-train collision. She threw Cassandra's letter at me. It missed and landed under a Volvo, and then she sat down on the curb and started hyperventilating. Oh, God, she wailed. Oh, my God. This is when my boys claim they would have pulled a total fucking denial. Cassandra who? I was too sick to my stomach to even try. I sat down next to her, grabbed her flailing arms, and said some dumb shit like, You have to listen to me, Magda, or you won't understand. Let me tell you about Magda. She's a Bergen Line original. Sure, with a big mouth and big hips and dark curly hair you could lose a hand in. Her father's a baker. Her mother sells kids' clothes door to door. She might be nobody's bendeja, but she's also a forgiving soul, a Catholic. Drag me into church every Sunday for Spanish Mass, and when one of her relatives is sick, especially the ones in Cuba, she writes letters to some nuns in Pennsylvania, asks the sisters to pray for her family. She's the nerd every librarian in town knows, a teacher whose students love her, always cutting shit out for me from the newspapers, Dominican shit. I see her like what, every week? And she still sends me corny little notes in the mail, so you won't forget me.
You couldn't think of anybody worse to screw than Magda. Anyway, I won't bore you with what happens after she finds out. The begging, the crawling over glass, the crying. Let's just say that after two weeks of this, of my driving out to her house, sending her letters, and calling her at all hours of the night, we put it back together. Didn't mean I ever ate with her family again, or that her girlfriends were celebrating. Those cabronas, they were like, no, jamás, never. Even Magda wasn't too hot on the reproachment at first, but I had the momentum of the past on my side. When she asked me, why don't you leave me alone? I told her the truth. It's because I love you, mommy. I know this sounds like a load of doo-doo, but it's true. Magda's my heart. I didn't want her to leave me. I wasn't about to start looking for a girlfriend because I'd fucked up one lousy time. Don't think it was a cakewalk because it wasn't. Magda's stubborn. Back when we first started dating, she said she wouldn't sleep with me until we'd been together at least a month, and homegirl stuck to it, no matter how hard I tried to get in her knickknacks. She's sensitive, too. Takes to her the way water takes to paper. You can't imagine how many times she asked, especially after we finished fucking, were you ever going to tell me? This and why were her favorite questions. My favorite answers were, yes, and it was a stupid mistake. I wasn't thinking. We even had some conversations about Cassandra, usually in the dark when we couldn't see each other. Magda asked me if I'd loved Cassandra, and I told her, nah, I didn't. Do you still think about her? Nope. Did you like fucking her? To be honest, baby, it was lousy. That one is never very believable, but you got to say it anyway, no matter how stupid and unreal it sounds. Say it. And for a while after we got back together, everything was as fine as it could be, but only for a little while. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, my Magda started turning into another Magda who didn't want to sleep over as much or scratch my back when I asked her to. Amazing what you notice. Like how she never used to ask me to call back when she was on the line with somebody else. I always had priority. Not anymore. So of course I blamed all that shit on her girls, who I knew for a fact were still feeding her a bad line about me. She wasn't the only one with counsel. My boys were like, fuck her. Don't sweat that bitch. But every time I tried, I couldn't pull it off. I was into Magda for real. I started working overtime on her again, but nothing seemed to pan out. Every movie we went to, every night drive we took, every time she did sleep over seemed to confirm something negative about me. I felt like I was dying by degrees, but when I brought it up, she told me that I was being paranoid. About a month later, she started making the sort of changes that would have alarmed a paranoid nigga. Cuts her hair, buys better makeup, rocks new clothes, goes out dancing on Friday nights with her friends. When I ask her if we can chill, I'm no longer sure it's a done deal. A lot of the time, she Bartleby's me, says, no, I'd rather not. I ask her what the hell she thinks this is, and she says, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I know what she was doing, making me aware of my precarious position in her life, like I was not aware. Then, it was June, 
hot white clouds stranded in the sky, cars being washed down with hoses, music allowed outside, everybody getting ready for summer, even us. We'd planned a trip to Santo Domingo early in the year, an anniversary present, and had to decide whether we were still going or not. It had been on the horizon a while, but I figured it was something that would resolve itself. When it didn't, I brought the tickets out and asked her, how do you feel about it? Like it's too much of a commitment. Could be worse. It's a vacation for Christ's sakes. I see it as pressure. Does it have to be pressure? I don't know why I get stuck on it the way I do. Bringing it up every day, trying to get her to commit. Maybe I was getting tired of the situation we were in, wanted to flex, wanted something to change. Or maybe I'd gotten this idea in my head that if she said, yes, we're going, then she would be fine between us. If she said, no, it's not for me, then at least I'd know that it was over. Her girls, the sorest losers on the planet, advised her to take the trip and then never to speak to me again. She, of course, told me this shit because she couldn't stop herself from telling me everything she's thinking. How do you feel about that suggestion, I asked her. She shrugged. It's an idea. Even my boys were like, nigga, sounds like you're wasting a whole lot of loot on some bullshit. But I really thought it would be good for us. Deep down, where my boys don't know me, I'm an optimist. I thought, me and her on the island, what couldn't this cure? Let me confess, I love Santo Domingo. I love coming home to the guys in blazers trying to push little cups of Brugal into my hands. Love the plane landing, everybody clapping when the wheels kiss the runway. Love the fact that I'm the only nigga on board without a Cuban link or a flapjack of makeup on my face. Love the redhead woman on her way to meet the daughter she hasn't seen in 11 years. The gifts she holds on her lap like the bones of a saint. Mi hija has tetas now, the woman whispers to her neighbor. Last time I saw her, she could barely speak in sentences. Now she's a woman. Imaginate. I love the bags my mom packs, shit for relatives, and something for Magda, a gift. You give this to her no matter what happens. If this was another kind of story, I'd tell you about the sea. What it looks like after it's been forced into the sky through a blowhole. How when I'm driving in from the airport and see it like this, like shredded silver, I know I'm back for real. I'd tell you about how many poor motherfuckers there are. More albinos, more cross-eyed niggers, more tigres than you'll ever see. And I'd tell you about the traffic. The entire history of late 20th century automobiles swarming across every flat stretch of ground. A cosmology of battered cars, battered motorcycles, battered trucks, and battered buses. And an equal number of repair shops run by any fool with a wrench. I tell you about the shanties and our no-running water faucets and the sambos on the billboards and the fact that my family house comes equipped with an ever-reliable latrine. I tell you about my abuelo and his campo hands, how unhappy he is that I'm not sticking around. And I tell you about the street where I was born, Calle 21, how it hasn't decided yet if it wants to be a slum or not, and how it's been in this state of indecision for years. But that would make it another kind of story. And I'm having enough trouble with this one as it is. You'll have to take my word for it. Santo Domingo is Santo Domingo. Let's pretend we all know what goes on there.
I must have been smoking dust, because I thought we were fine those first couple of days. Sure, staying locked up at my abuelo's house bored Magda to tears. She even said so. I'm bored, Junior. But I'd warned her about the obligatory visit with abuelo. I thought she wouldn't mind. She's normally mad cool with the viejitos, but she didn't say much to him. Just fidgeted in the heat and drank 15 bottles of water. Point is, we were out of the capital and Anaguagua to the interior before the second day had even begun. The landscapes were super fly, even though there was a drought on and the whole campo, even the houses, was covered in that red dust. There I was, pointing out all the shit that had changed since the year before. The new pizzarelli and the little plastic bags of water that Tigritos were selling even kicked the historicals. This is where Trujillo and his marine pal slaughtered the gavilleros. Here's where the jefe used to take his girls. Here's where Balaguer sold his soul to the devil. And Magda seemed to be enjoying herself, nodded her head, talked back a little. What can I tell you? I thought we were on a positive vibe. I guess when I look back, there were signs. First off, Magda's not quiet. She's a talker, a fucking boca. And we used to have this thing where I would lift my hand and say, time out, and she would have to be quiet for at least two minutes just so I could process some of the information she'd been spouting. She'd be embarrassed and chastened, but not so embarrassed and chastened that when I said, okay, time's up, she didn't launch right into it again. Maybe it was my good mood. It was like the first time in weeks that I felt relaxed, that I wasn't acting like something was about to give at any moment. It bothered me that she insisted on reporting to her girls every night, like they were expecting me to kill her or something. But fuck it, I still thought we were doing better than any time before. We were in this crazy budget hotel near Pucamaima. I was standing on the balcony, staring at the septentrionales and the blacked-out city when I heard her crying. I thought it was something serious, found the flashlight and fanned the light over her heat-swollen face. Are you okay? She shook her head. I don't want to be here. What do you mean? What don't you understand? I don't want to be here. This was not the Magda I knew. The Magda I knew was super courteous, knocked on a door before she opened it. I almost shouted, what is your fucking problem? But I didn't. I ended up hugging and babying her and asking her what was wrong. She cried for a long time and then after a silence started talking. By then the lights had flickered back on. Turned out she didn't want to travel around like a hobo. I thought we'd be on a beach, she said. We're going to be on a beach. The day after tomorrow. Can't we go now? What could I do? She was in her underwear waiting for me to say something. So what jumped out of my mouth? Baby, we'll do whatever you want. I called the hotel in La Romana, asked if we could come early, and the next morning I put us on an express guagua to the capital, and then a second one to La Romana. I didn't say a fucking word to her, and she didn't say nothing to me. She seemed tired and watched the world outside like maybe she was expecting it to speak to her. By the middle of day three of our all Kiskeya redemption tour, we were in an air-conditioned bungalow watching HBO.
exactly where I want to be when I'm in Santo Domingo, in a fucking resort. Magda was reading a book by a trappist, in a better mood, I guessed, and I was sitting on the edge of the bed, fingering my useless map. I was thinking, for this, I deserve something nice, something physical. Me and Magda were pretty damn casual about sex, but since the breakup, shit has gotten weird. First of all, it ain't regular like before. I'm lucky to score some once a week. I have to nudge her, start things up, or we won't fuck at all. And she plays like she doesn't want it, and sometimes she doesn't, and then I have to cool it. But other times she does want it, and I have to touch her pussy, which is my way of initiating things, of saying, so how about we kick it, mommy? And then she'll turn her head, which is her way of saying, I am too proud to acquiesce openly to your animal desires, but if you continue to put your finger in me, I won't stop you. Today, we started no problem, but then halfway through, she said, wait, we shouldn't. I wanted to know why. She closed her eyes like she was embarrassed at herself. Forget about it, she said, moving her hips under me. Just forget about it. I don't even want to tell you where we're at. We're in Casa de Campo, the resort that Shane forgot. The average asshole would love this place. It's the largest, wealthiest resort on the island, which means it's a goddamn fortress, walled away from everybody else. Guachimanes and peacocks and ambitious topiaries everywhere. Advertises itself in the States as its own country, and it might as well be. Has its own airport, 36 holes of golf, beaches so white they ache to be trampled and the only island Dominicans you're guaranteed to see are either caked up or changing your sheets. Let's just say my abuelo has never been here, and neither has yours. This is where the Garcias and the Colons come to relax after a long month of oppressing the masses, where the Tutempotes can trade tips with their colleagues from abroad. Chill here too long, and you'll be sure to have your ghetto pass revoked, no questions asked. We wake up bright and early for the buffet, get served by cheerful women in Aunt Jemima costumes. I shit you not. These sisters even have to wear hankies on their heads. Magda is scratching out a couple of cards to her family. I want to talk about the day before, but when I bring it up, she puts down her pen, jams on her shades. I feel like you're pressuring me. How am I pressuring you, I ask. I just want some space to myself every now and then. Every time I'm with you, I have this sense that you want something from me. Time to yourself, I say. What does that mean? Like maybe once a day, you do one thing, I do another. Like when? Now? It doesn't have to be now. She looks exasperated. Why don't we just go down to the beach? As we walk over to the courtesy golf cart... I say, I feel like you rejected my whole country, Magda. Don't be ridiculous. She drops one hand in my lap. I just want to relax. What's wrong with that? The sun is blazing, and the blue of the ocean is an overload on the brain. Casa de Campo has got beaches, the way the rest of the island has got problems. These, though, have no merengue, 
no little kids, nobody trying to sell you chicharrones, and there's a massive melanin deficit in evidence. Every 50 feet, there's at least one euro fuck beached out on a towel like some scary pale monster that the seas vomited up. They look like philosophy professors, like budget Foucault's, and too many of them are in the company of a dark-ass Dominican girl. I mean it. These girls can't be no more than 16. Look puro ingenio to me. You can tell by their inability to communicate that these two didn't meet back in their left bank days. Magda's rocking a dope, a chun-colored bikini that her girls helped her pick out so she could torture me, and I'm in these old, ruined trunks that say Sandy Hook forever. I'll admit it, with Magda half-naked in public, I'm feeling vulnerable and uneasy. I put my hand on her knee. I just wish you'd say you love me. Junior, please. Can you say you like me a lot? Can you leave me alone? You are such a pestilence. I let the sun stake me out to the sand. It's disheartening me and Magda together. We don't look like a couple. When she smiles, niggas ask for her hand in marriage. When I smile, folks check their wallets. Magda's been a star the whole time we've been here. You know how it is when you're on the island and your girl's an octoroon. Brothers go apeshit. On the buses, the machos were like, Tu si eres bella, muchacha. Every time I dip into the water for a swim, some Mediterranean messenger of love starts rapping to her. Of course I'm not polite. Why don't you beat it, Pancho? We're on our honeymoon here. There's this one squid who's mad persistent, even sits down near us so he can impress her with the hair around his nipples. And instead of ignoring him, she starts a conversation, and it turns out he's Dominican too, from Kiskeya Heights, an assistant DA who loves his people. Better arm their prosecutor, he says. At least I understand them. I'm thinking, he sounds like the sort of nigga who in the old days used to lead Buana to the rest of us. After three minutes of him, I can't take it anymore and say, Magda, stop talking to that asshole. The assistant DA startles. I know you ain't talking to me, he says. Actually, I say, I am. This is unbelievable. Magda gets to her feet and walks stiff-legged towards the water. She's got a half-moon of sand stuck to her butt, a total fucking heartbreak. Homeboy's saying something else to me, but I'm not listening. I already know what she'll say when she sits back down. Time for you to do your thing and me to do mine. That night, I loiter around the pool and the local bar, Club Cacique, Magda nowhere to be found. I meet a Dominicana from West New York, fly a course, Trigueña, with the most outrageous perm this side of Dykeman. Lucy is her name. She's hanging out with three of her teenage cousins. When she removes her robe to dive into the pool, I see a spider web of scars across her stomach. I also meet these two rich older dudes drinking cognac at the bar, introduce themselves as the vice president and Barbaro, his bodyguard. I must have footprints of fresh disaster on my face. They listen to my troubles like they're a couple of capos 
and I'm talking murder. They commiserate. It's a thousand degrees out, and the mosquitoes hum like they're about to inherit the earth. But both these cats are wearing expensive suits, and Barbaro is even sporting a purple ascot. Once a soldier tried to saw open his neck, and now he covers the scar. I'm a modest man, he says. I go off to phone the room. No Magda. I check with reception. No messages. I return to the bar and smile. The vice president is a young brother in his late thirties and pretty cool for a chupabario. He advises me to find another woman, make her bella and negra, and I think Cassandra. The vice president waves his hands, and shots of Barcelo appear so fast you'd think it's science fiction. Jealousy is the best way to jumpstart a relationship, the vice president says. I learned that when I was a student at Syracuse. Dance with another woman, dance merengue with her, and see if your heba is not roused to action. You mean roused to violence? She hit you? When I first told her, she smacked me right across the chops. Pero hermano, why did you tell her? Barbaro wants to know. Why didn't you just deny it, compadre? She received the letter. It had evidence. The vice president smiles fantastically, and I can see why he's a vice president. Later, when I get home, I'll tell my mother about this whole mess, and she'll tell me what this brother was the vice president of. They only hit you, he says, when they care. Amen, Barbaro murmurs. Amen. All of Magda's friends say I cheated because I was Dominican. That all us Dominican men are dogs and can't be trusted. I doubt that I can speak for all Dominican men, but I doubt they can either. From my perspective, it wasn't genetics. There were reasons, causalities. The truth is, there ain't no relationship in the world that doesn't hit turbulence. Mine and Magda's certainly did. I was living in Brooklyn, and she was with her folks in Jersey. We talked every day on the phone, and on weekends we saw each other. Usually, I went in. We were real Jersey too. Malls, the parents, movies, a lot of TV. After a year of us together, this was where we were at. Our relationship wasn't the sun, the moon, and the stars, but it wasn't bullshit either. Especially not on Saturday mornings. Over at my apartment, when she made us coffee campo style, straining it through the sock thing, told her parents the night before she was staying over at Claribel's. They must have known where she was, but they never said shit. I'd sleep late, and she'd read, scratching my back in slow arcs. And when I was ready to get up, I would start kissing her until she would say, "God, Junior, you're making me wet." I wasn't unhappy. And wasn't actively pursuing ass like some niggers. Sure, I checked out other females, even danced with them when I went out, but I wasn't keeping numbers or nothing. Still, it's not like seeing somebody once a week doesn't cool shit out, because it does. Nothing you'd really notice until some new chick arrives at your job with a big butt and a smart mouth, and she's like on you almost immediately. Touching your pectorals, moaning about some moreno she's dating, who's always treating her like shit, saying, 
black guys don't understand Spanish girls. Cassandra. She organized a football pool and did crossword puzzles while she talked on the phone and had a thing for denim skirts. We got into a habit of going to lunch and having the same conversation. I advised her to drop the moreno. She advised me to find a girlfriend who could fuck. First week of knowing her, I made the mistake of telling her that sex with Magda had never been top-notch. God, I feel sorry for you, Cassandra said. At least Rupert gives me some grade-A dick. The first night we did it, and it was good, too. She wasn't false advertising. I felt so lousy that I couldn't sleep, even though she was one of those sisters whose body fits next to you perfect. I was like... She knows. So I called Magda right from the bed and asked her if she was okay. You sound strange, she said. I remember Cassandra pressing the hot cleft of her pussy against my leg and me saying, I just miss you. Another perfect sunny Caribbean day and the only thing Magda has said is, give me the lotion. Tonight, the resort is throwing a party. All guests are invited. Attire semi-formal, but I don't have the clothes or the energy to dress up. Magda, though, has both. She pulls on these super tight gold lame pants and a matching halter that shows off her belly ring. Her hair is shiny and is dark as night, and I can remember the first time I kissed those curls, asking her, where are the stars? And she said, they're a little lower, Bobby. We both ended up in front of the mirror. I'm in slacks and a wrinkled chacabana. She's applying her lipstick. I've always believed that the universe invented the color red solely for Latinas. We look good, she says. It's true. My optimism is starting to come back. I'm thinking, this is the night for reconciliation. I put my arms around her but she drops her bomb without blinking a fucking eye. Tonight, she says, she needs space. My arms drop. I knew you'd be pissed, she says. You're a real bitch, you know that? I didn't want to come here. You made me. And if you didn't want to come, why didn't you have the fucking guts to say so? And on and on and on. Until finally I just say... Fuck this and head out. I feel unmoored and don't have a clue of what comes next. This is the end game. And instead of pulling out all the stops, instead of pogándome más chivo que un chivo, I'm feeling sorry for myself. Como un pariguayo sin suerte. I'm thinking over and over, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a bad guy. Club Cacique is jammed. I'm looking for that girl Lucy. I find the vice president and Barbaro instead. At the quiet end of the bar, they're drinking cognac and arguing about whether there are 56 Dominicans in the major leagues or 57. They clear out a space for me and clap me on the shoulder. This place is killing me, I say. How dramatic. The vice president reaches into his suit for his keys. He's wearing those Italian leather shoes that look like braided slippers. Are you inclined to ride with us? Sure, I say. 
Why the fuck not? I wish to show you the birthplace of our nation. Before we leave, I check out the crowd. Lucy has arrived. She's alone at the edge of the bar in a fly black dress, smiles excitedly, lifts her arm, and I can see the dark stubbled spot in her armpit. She's got sweat patches over her outfit and mosquito bites on her beautiful arms. I think I should stay, but my legs carry me right out of the club. We pile into a diplomat's black BMW. I'm in the back seat with Babaro, the vice president's up front driving. We leave Casa de Campo behind and the frenzy of La Romana, and soon everything starts smelling of processed cane. The roads are dark. I'm talking no fucking lights. And in our beams, the bugs swarm like a biblical plague. We're passing the cognac around. I'm with a vice president. I figure, what the fuck? He's talking about his time in upstate New York. But so is Barbaro. The bodyguard's suits rumpled and his hand shakes as he smokes his cigarette. Some fucking bodyguard. He's telling me about his childhood in San Juan, near the border of Haiti, Liborio's country. I wanted to be an engineer, he tells me. I wanted to build schools and hospitals for the pueblo. I'm not really listening to him. I'm thinking about Magda, how I'll probably never taste her chocha again. And then we're out of the car, stumbling up a slope, through bushes and guineo and bamboo, and the mosquitoes are chewing us up like we're the special of the day. Barbaro's got a huge flashlight, a darkness obliterator. The vice president's cursing, trampling through the underbrush, saying, it's around here somewhere. This is what I get for being in office so long. It's only then I notice that Barbaro's holding a huge fucking machine gun, and his hand ain't shaking no more. He isn't watching me or the vice president. He's listening. I'm not scared, but this is getting a little too freaky for me. What kind of gun is that, I ask, by way of conversation? A P-90. What the fuck is that? Something old made new. Great, I'm thinking. A philosopher. It's here, the vice president calls out. I creep over and see that he's standing over a hole in the ground. The earth is red, bauxite, and the hole is blacker than any of us. This is the cave of the Hagua, the vice president announces in a deep, respectful voice. The birthplace of the Tainos. I raise my eyebrow. I thought they were South American. We're speaking mythically here. Barbaro points the light down the hole, but that doesn't improve anything. Would you like to see inside? The vice president asks me. I must have said yes, because Barbaro gives me the flashlight, and the two of them grab me by my ankles and lower me into the hole. All my coins fly out of my pockets. Bendiciones. I don't see much, just some odd colors on the eroded walls, and the vice president's calling down, isn't it beautiful? This is the perfect place for insight, for a person to become somebody better.
The vice president probably saw his future self hanging in this darkness, bulldozing the poor out of their shanties, and Barbaro too, buying a concrete house for his mother, showing her how to work the air conditioner. But me, all I can manage is a memory of the first time me and Magda talked, back at Rutgers. We were waiting for an e-bus together on George Street, and she was wearing purple, all sorts of purple. And that's when I know it's over. As soon as you start thinking about the beginning, it's the end. I cry, and when they pull me up, the vice president says indignantly, God, you don't have to be a pussy about it. That must have been some serious island voodoo. The ending I saw in the cave came true. The next day, we went back to the United States. Five months later, I got a letter from my ex-baby. I was dating someone new, but Magda's handwriting still blasted every molecule of air out of my lungs. It turned out she was also going out with somebody else. A very nice guy she'd met, Dominican like me, except he loves me, she wrote. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I need to finish by showing you what kind of fool I was. When I returned to the bungalow that night, Magda was waiting up for me, was packed, looked like she'd been bawling. I'm going home tomorrow, she said. I sat down next to her, took her hand. This can work, I said. All we have to do is try. Nilda Nilda was my brother's girlfriend. That's how all these stories begin. She was Dominican, from here, and had super long hair like those Pentecostal girls and a chest you wouldn't believe. I'm talking world class. Rafa would sneak her down into our basement bedroom after our mother went to bed and do her to whatever was on the radio right then. The two of them had to let me stay because if my mother heard me upstairs on the couch, everybody's ass would have been fried. And since I wasn't about to spend my night out in the bushes, this is how it was. Rafa didn't make no noise, just a low something that resembled breathing. Nilda was the one. She seemed to be trying to hold back from crying the whole time. It was crazy hearing her like that. The Nilda I'd grown up with was one of the quietest girls you'd ever met. She let her hair wall away her face and read the new mutants, and the only time she looked straight at anything was when she looked out a window. But that was before she'd gotten that chest, before that slash of black hair had gone from something to pull on the bus to something to stroke in the dark. The new Nilda wore stretch pants and Iron Maiden shirts. She had already run away from her mother's and ended up at a group home. She'd already slept with Doño and Nestor and little Anthony from Parkwood, older guys. She crashed over at our apartment a lot because she hated her mom's, who was the neighborhood borracha. In the morning, she slipped out before my mother woke up and found her, waited for heads at the bus stop, fronted like she'd come from her own place, same clothes as the day before, and greasy hair, so everybody thought her a skank. Waited for my brother and didn't talk to anybody and nobody talked to her because she'd always been one of those quiet, 
semi-retarded girls who you couldn't talk to without being dragged into a whirlpool of dumb stories. If Rafa decided he wasn't going to school, then she'd wait near our apartment until my mother left for work. Sometimes Rafa let her in right away. Sometimes he slept late, and she'd wait across the street, building letters out of pebbles until she saw him crossing the living room. She had big stupid lips and a sad moon face and the driest skin, always rubbing lotion on it and cursing the Moreno father who'd given it to her. It seemed like she was forever waiting for my brother. Nights she'd knock and I'd let her in and we'd sit on the couch while Rafa was off at his job at the carpet factory or working out at the gym. I'd show her my newest comics and she'd read them real close, but as soon as Rafa showed up, she'd throw them in my lap and jump into his arms. I missed you, she'd say in a little girl voice, and Rafa would laugh. You should have seen him in those days. He had the face bones of a saint. Then mommy's door would open, and Rafa would detach himself and cowboy saunter over to mommy and say, You got something for me to eat, vieja? Claro que sí, mommy'd say, trying to put her glasses on. He had us all the way only a pretty nigger can. Once, when Rafa was late from the job and we were alone in the apartment a long time, I asked Nilda about the group home. It was three weeks before the end of the school year and everybody had entered the do-nothing stage. I was 14 and reading Dahlgren for a second time. I had an IQ that would have broken you in two, but I would have traded it for a halfway decent face in a second. It was pretty cool up there, she said. She was pulling on the front of her halter top, trying to air her chest out. The food was bad, but there were a lot of cute guys in the house with me. They all wanted me. She started chewing on a nail. Even the guys who worked there were calling me after I left, she said. The only reason Rafa went after her was because his last full-time girlfriend had gone back to Guyana. She was this Dogla girl with a single eyebrow and skin to die for, and because Nilda had pushed up on him. She'd only been back from the group home a couple of months, but by then she'd already gotten a rep as a cuero. A lot of the Dominican girls in town were on some serious lockdown. We saw them on the bus and at school and maybe at the Pathmark, but since most families knew exactly what kind of tigres were roaming the neighborhood, these girls weren't allowed to hang. Nilda was different. She was what we called in those days brown trash. Her mom's was a mean-ass drunk and always running around South Amboy with her white boyfriends, which is a way of saying Nilda could hang, and man, did she ever. Always out in the world, always cars rolling up beside her. Before I even knew she was back from the group home, she got scooped up by this older nigga from the back apartment. He kept her on his dick for almost four months. And I used to see them driving around in his fucked up, rust-eaten sunbird while I delivered my papers. Motherfucker was like 300 years old. But because he had a car and a record collection and photo albums from his Vietnam days, and because he bought her clothes to replace the old shit she was wearing, Nilda was all lost on him. I hated this nigga with a passion, 
but when it came to guys, there was no talking to Nilda. I used to ask her, what's up with wrinkled dick? And she would get so mad she wouldn't speak to me for days. And then I'd get this note, I want you to respect my man. Whatever, I'd write back. Then the old dude bounced. No one knew where, the usual scenario in my neighborhood. And for a couple of months, she got tossed by those cats from Parkwood. On Thursdays, which was comic book day, she'd drop in to see what I'd picked up, and she'd talk to me about how unhappy she was. We'd sit together until it got dark, and then her beeper would fire up, and she'd peer into its display and say, I have to go. Sometimes I could grab her and pull her back on the couch, and we'd sit there a long time, me waiting for her to fall in love with me, her waiting for whatever, but other times she'd be serious. I have to go see my man, she'd say. One of those comic book days, what she saw was my brother coming back from his five-mile run. Rafa was still boxing then, and he was cut up like crazy, the muscles on his chest and abdomen so striated, they looked like something out of a Frazetta drawing. He noticed her because she was wearing these ridiculous shorts and this tank that couldn't have blocked a sneeze, and a thin roll of stomach was poking from between the fabrics, and he smiled at her, and she got real serious and uncomfortable, and he told her to fix him some iced tea, and she told him to fix it himself. You a guest here, he said. You should be earning your fucking keep. He went into the shower, and as soon as he did, she was in the kitchen stirring, and I told her to leave it, but she said, I might as well. We drank all of it. I wanted to warn her, tell her he was a monster, but she was already headed for him at the speed of light. The next day, Rafa's car turned up broken. What a coincidence. So we took the bus to school, and when he was walking past our seat, he took her hand and pulled her to her feet, and she said, get off me. Her eyes were pointed straight at the floor. I just want to show you something, he said. She was pulling with her arm, but the rest of her was ready to go. Come on, Rafa said, and finally she went. Save my seat, she said over her shoulder, and I was like, don't worry about it. Before we even swung on a 516, Nilda was in my brother's lap, and he had his hands so far up her skirt it looked like he was performing a surgical procedure. When we were getting off the bus, Rafa pulled me aside and held his hand in front of my nose. Smell this, he said. This is what's wrong with women. You couldn't get anywhere near Nilda for the rest of the day. She had her hair pulled back and was glorious with triumph. Even the white girls knew about my over-muscled about-to-be-a-senior brother and were impressed. And while Nilda sat at the end of our lunch table and whispered to some girls, me and my boys ate our crap sandwiches and talked about the X-Men. This was back when the X-Men still made some kind of sense. And even if we didn't want to admit it, the truth was now patent and awful. All the real dope girls were headed up to the high school like moths to a light, and there was nothing any of us younger cats could do about it. My man, Jose Negron, a.k.a. Joe Black, took Nilda's defection the hardest, 
since he'd actually imagined he had a chance with her. Right after she got back from the group home, he'd held her hand on the bus, and even though she'd gone off with other guys, he'd never forgotten it. I was in the basement three nights later when she and Rafa did it. That first time, neither of them made a sound. They went out that whole summer. I don't remember anyone doing anything big. Me and my pathetic little crew hiked over to Morgan Creek and swam around in water stinking of leachate from the landfill. We were just getting serious about the licks that year, and Joe Black was stealing bottles out of his father's stash, and we were drinking them down to the corners on the swings behind the apartments. Because of the heat, and because of what I felt inside my chest a lot, I often just sat in the crib with my brother and Nilda. Rafa was tired all the time and pale. This had happened in a matter of days. I used to say, look at you, white boy, and he used to say, look at you, you black, ugly nigger. He didn't feel like doing much, and besides, his car had finally broken down for real, so we would all sit in the air-conditioned apartment and watch TV. Rafa had decided he wasn't going back to school for his senior year, and even though my mom's was heartbroken and trying to guilt him into it five times a day, this was all he talked about. School had never been his gig, and after my pops left us for his 25-year-old, Rafa didn't feel he needed to pretend any longer. I'd like to take a long fucking trip, he told us. See California before it slides into the ocean. California, I said. California, he said. A nigga could make a showing out there. I'd like to go there too, Nilda said, but Rafa didn't answer her. He had closed his eyes, and you could see he was in pain. We rarely talked about our father. Me, I was just happy not to be getting my ass kicked in anymore. But once, right at the beginning of the last great absence, I asked my brother where he thought he was, and Rafa said, like, I fucking care. End of conversation. World without end. On days niggers were really out of their minds with boredom, we trooped down to the pool and got in for free because Rafa was boys with one of the lifeguards. I swam. Nilda went on missions around the pool just so she could show off how tight she looked in her bikini, and Rafa sprawled under the awning and took it all in. Sometimes he called me over, and we'd sit together for a while, and he'd close his eyes, and I'd watch the water dry on my ashy legs, and then he'd tell me to go back to the pool. When Nilda finished promenading and came back to where Rafa was chilling, she kneeled at his side, and he would kiss her real long, his hands playing up and down the length of her back. Ain't nothing like a 15-year-old with a banging body, those hands seemed to be saying, at least to me. Joe Black was always watching them. Man, he muttered, she's so fine, I'd lick her asshole and tell you niggas about it. Maybe I would have thought they were cute if I hadn't known Rafa. He might have seemed enamorado with Nilda, but he also had mad girls in orbit, like this one piece of white trash from Sayreville and this morena from New Amsterdam Village who also slept over and sounded like a freight train when they did it. I don't remember her name, but I do remember how her perm shone in the glow of our nightlight. In August, Rafa quit his job at the carpet factory, 
I'm too fucking tired, he complained. And some mornings his leg bones hurt so much he couldn't get out of bed right away. The Romans used to shatter these with iron clubs, I told him, while I massaged his shins. The pain would kill you instantly. Great, he said. Cheer me up some more, you fucking bastard. One day, Mommy took him to the hospital for a checkup, and afterward, I found them sitting on the couch, both of them dressed up, watching TV like nothing had happened. They were holding hands, and Mommy appeared tiny next to him. Well? Rafa shrugged. The doc thinks I'm anemic. Anemic ain't bad. Yeah, Rafa said, laughing bitterly. God bless Medicaid. In the light of the TV, he looked terrible. That was the summer when everything we would become was hovering just over our heads. Girls were starting to take notice of me. I wasn't good looking, but I listened and had boxing muscles in my arms. In another universe, I probably came out okay, ended up with mad novias and jobs and a sea of love in which to swim. But in this world, I had a brother who was dying of cancer and a long, dark patch of life like a mile of black ice waiting for me up ahead. One night, a couple of weeks before school started, they must have thought I was asleep. Nilda started telling Rafa about her plans for the future. I think even she knew what was about to happen. Listening to her imagining herself was about the saddest thing you ever heard. How she wanted to get away from her mom's and open up a group home for runaway kids. But this one would be real cool, she said. It would be for normal kids who just got problems. She must have loved him because she went on and on. Plenty of people talk about having a flow, but that night I really heard one, something that was unbroken, that fought itself and worked together all at once. Rafa didn't say nothing. Maybe he had his hand in her hair, or maybe he was just like, fuck you. When she finished, he didn't even say, wow. I wanted to kill myself with embarrassment. About a half hour later, she got up and dressed. She couldn't see me, or she would have known that I thought she was beautiful. She stepped into her pants and pulled them up in one motion, sucked in her stomach while she buttoned them. I'll see you later, she said. Yeah, he said. After she walked out, he put on the radio and started on the speed bag. I stopped pretending I was asleep. I sat up and watched him. Did you guys have a fight or something? No, he said. Why'd she leave? He sat down on my bed. His chest was sweating. She had to go. But where's she gonna stay? I don't know. He put his hand on my face gently. Why ain't you minding your business? A week later, he was seeing some other girl. She was from Trinidad, a Coco Pañol, and she had this phony as hell English accent. It was the way we all were back then. None of us wanted to be niggers. Not for nothing. I guess two years passed. My brother was gone by then, and I was on my way to becoming a nut. I was out of school most of the time and had no friends, and I sat inside and watched Univision or walked down to the dump and smoked the mota I should have been selling 
until I couldn't see. Nilda didn't fare so well either. A lot of the things that happened to her, though, had nothing to do with me or my brother. She fell in love a couple more times, really bad, with this one Moreno truck driver who took her to Manalapan and then abandoned her at the end of the summer. I had to drive over to get her, and the house was one of those tiny box jobs with a 50-cent lawn and no kind of charm. She was acting like she was some Italian chick and offered me a basso in the car, but I put my hand on hers and told her to stop it. Back home, she fell in with more stupid niggers, relocated kids from the city, and they came at her with drama, and some of their girls beat her up, a brick city beat down, and she lost her bottom front teeth. She was in and out of school, and for a while they put her on home instruction, and that was when she finally dropped. My junior year, she started delivering papers so she could make money, and since I was spending a lot of time outside, I saw her every now and then. Broke my heart. She wasn't at her lowest yet, but she was aiming there, and when we passed each other, she always smiled and said hi. She was starting to put on weight, and she'd cut her hair down to nothing, and her moon face was heavy and alone. I always said, what's up? And when I had cigarettes, I gave them to her. She'd gone to the funeral, along with a couple of his other girls, and what a skirt she'd worn, like maybe she could still convince him of something. And she'd kiss my mother, but the vieja hadn't known who she was. I had to tell mommy on the ride home, and all she could remember about her was that she was the one who smelled good. It wasn't until mommy said it that I realized it was true. It was only one summer, and she was nobody special. So what's the point of all this? He's gone. He's gone. He's gone. I'm 23, and I'm washing my clothes up at the mini mall on Ernston Road. She's here with me. She's folding her shit and smiling and showing me her missing teeth and saying, It's been a long time, hasn't it, Junior? Years, I say, loading my whites. Outside, the sky is clear of gulls, and down at the apartment, my mom's is waiting for me with dinner. Six months earlier, we were sitting in front of the TV, and my mother said, Well, I think I'm finally over this place. Nilda asks, Did you move or something? I shake my head. Just been working. God, it's been a long, long time. She's on her clothes like magic, making everything neat, making everything fit. There are four other people at the counters, broke-ass-looking niggers with knee socks and croupiers hats and scars snaking up their arms, and they all seem like sleepwalkers compared with her. She shakes her head, grinning. Your brother, she says. Rafa. She points her finger at me like my brother always did. I miss him sometimes. She nods. Me too. He was a good guy to me. I must have disbelief on my face because she finishes shaking out her towels and then stares straight through me. He treated me the best. Nilda. He used to sleep with my hair over his face. He used to say it made him feel safe. What else can we say? She finishes her stacking. I hold the door open for her. The locals watch us leave. We walk back through the old neighborhood, 
slowed down by the bulk of our clothes. London Terrace has changed now that the landfill has shut down, kicked up rent, and mad South Asian people and white folks living in the apartments, but it's our kids you see in the streets and hanging from the porches. Nilda is watching the ground as though she's afraid she might fall. My heart is beating, and I think we could do anything. We could marry. We could drive off to the West Coast. We could start over. It's all possible, but neither of us speaks for a long time, and the moment closes, and we're back in the world we've always known. Remember the day we met, she asks. I nod. You wanted to play baseball. It was summer, I say. You were wearing a tank top. You made me put on a shirt before you'd let me be on your team. Do you remember? I remember, I say. We never spoke again. A couple of years later, I went away to college, and I don't know where the fuck she went. Alma You, Junior, have a girlfriend named Alma, who has a long, tender horse neck and a big Dominican ass that seems to exist in a fourth dimension beyond jeans. An ass that could drag the moon out of orbit, an ass she never liked until she met you. Ain't a day that passes that you don't want to press your face against that ass or bite the delicate sliding tendons of her neck. You love how she shivers when you bite, how she fights you with those arms that are so skinny they belong on an after-school special. Alma is a Mason Gross student, one of those sonic youth comic book reading alternatinas without whom you might never have lost your virginity. Grew up in Hoboken, part of the Latino community that got its heart burnt out in the 80s, tenements turning to flame. Spent nearly every teenage day on the Lower East Side, thought it would always be home, but then NYU and Columbia both said niet, and she ended up even farther from the city than before. Alma is in a painting phase, and the people she paints are all the color of mold look like they've just been dredged from the bottom of a lake. Her last painting was of you, slouching against the front door. Only your frowning, I had a lousy third-world childhood and all I got was this attitude, eyes recognizable. She did give you one huge forearm. I told you I'd get the muscles in. The past couple of weeks, now that the warm is here, Alma has abandoned black, started wearing these nothing dresses made out of what feels like tissue paper. It wouldn't take more than a strong wind to undress her. She says she does it for you. I'm reclaiming my Dominican heritage. Which ain't a complete lie. She's even taking Spanish to better minister to your moms. And when you see her on the street, flaunting, flaunting, you know exactly what every nigger that walks by is thinking because you are thinking it too. Alma is slender as a reed, you a steroid-addicted block. Alma loves driving, you books. Alma owns a Saturn, you have no points on your license. Alma's nails are too dirty for cooking, your spaghetti con pollo is the best in the land. You are so very different. She rolls her eyes every time you turn on the news and says she can't stand politics. She won't even call herself Hispanic. 
she brags to her girls that you're a radical and a real Dominican, even though on the Platano Index you wouldn't even rank, Alma being only the third Latina you've ever really dated. You brag to your boys that she has more albums than any of them do, that she says terrible white girl things while you fuck. She's more adventurous in bed than any girl you've had. On your first date, she asked you if you wanted to come on her tits or her face. And maybe during boy training, you didn't get one of the memos because you were like, um, neither? And at least once a week, she will kneel on the mattress before you and with one hand pulling at her dark nipples, will play with herself, not letting you touch at all, fingers whisking the soft of her and her face looking desperately, furiously happy. She loves to talk while she's being dirty, too, will whisper, You like watching, don't you? You like listening to me come. And when she finishes, lets out this long, demolished groan. And only then will she allow you to pull her into an embrace as she wipes her gummy fingers on your chest. Yes, it's an opposites attract sort of thing. It's a great sex sort of thing. It's a no thinking sort of thing. It's wonderful, wonderful. Until one June day, Alma discovers that you are also fucking this beautiful freshman girl named Lakshmi. Discovers the fucking of Lakshmi because she, Alma, the girlfriend, opens your journal and reads. Oh, she had her suspicions. She waits for you on the stoop, and while you pull up in her Saturn and notice the journal in her hand, your heart plunges through you like a fat bandit through a hangman's trap. You take your time turning off the car. You are overwhelmed by a pelagic sadness. Sadness at being caught at the incontrovertible knowledge that she will never forgive you. You stare at her incredible legs, and between them, to that even more incredible popola you've loved so inconstantly these past eight months. Only when she starts walking over in anger do you finally step out. You dance across the lawn, powered by the last fumes of your outrageous sinvergüenceria. Hey, muñeca, you say, prevaricating to the end. When she starts shrieking, you ask her, Darling, whatever is the matter? She calls you a cocksucker, a punk motherfucker, a fake-ass Dominican. She claims you have a little penis, no penis, and worst of all, that you like curried pussy. Which really is unfair, you try to say, since Lakshmi is from Guyana, but Alma isn't listening. Instead of lowering your head and copping to it like a man, you pick up the journal as one might hold a baby's beshatted diaper, as one might pinch a recently benighted condom. You glance at the offending passages. Then you look at her and smile a smile your dissembling face will remember until the day you die. Baby, you say. Baby, this is part of my novel. This is how you lose her. Otra vida, otra vez. He sits on the mattress, the fat spread of his ass popping my fitted sheets from their corners. His clothes are stiff from the cold, 
and the splatter of dried paint on his pants has frozen into rivets. He smells of bread. He's been talking about the house he wants to buy, how hard it is to find one when you're Latino. When I ask him to stand up so I can fix the bed, he walks over to the window. So much snow, he says. I nod and wish he would be quiet. Ana Iris is trying to sleep on the other side of the room. She has spent half the night praying for her children back in Samana, and I know that in the morning she has to work at the fabrica. She moves uneasily, buried beneath comforters, her head beneath a pillow. Even here in the States, she drapes mosquito netting over her bed. There's a truck trying to turn the corner, he tells me. I wouldn't want to be that chamaco. It's a busy street, I say, and it is. Mornings I find the salt and the cut rock that the trucks spill onto the front lawn, little piles of treasure in the snow. Lie down, I tell him, and he comes to me, slipping under the covers. His clothes are rough, and I wait until it is warm enough under the sheets before I release the buckle to his pants. We shiver together, and he does not touch me until we stop. Yes, mean, he says. His mustache is against my ear, sawing at me. We had a man die today at the bread factory. He doesn't speak for a moment, as if the silence is the elastic that will bring his next words forward. Esetipo fell from the rafters. Hector found him between the conveyors. Was he a friend? This one? I recruited him at a bar, told him he wouldn't get cheated. That's too bad, I say. I hope he doesn't have a family. Probably does. Did you see him? What do you mean? Did you see him dead? Nah. I called the manager and he told me not to let anyone near. He crosses his arms. I do that roof work all the time. You're a lucky man, Ramon. Yes. But what if it had been me? That's a stupid question. What would you have done? I set my face against him. He has known the wrong women if he expects more. I want to say exactly what your wife's doing in Santo Domingo. Ana Iris mutters in the corner loudly, but she's just pretending, bailing me out of trouble. He goes quiet because he doesn't want to wake her. After a while, he gets up and sits by the window. The snow has started falling again. Radio Wado says this winter will be worse than the last four, maybe the worst in ten years. I watch him. He's smoking, his fingers tracing the thin bones around his eyes, the slack of skin around his mouth. I wonder who he's thinking about. His wife, Vita, or maybe his child. He has a house in Villahuana. I've seen the photos Vita sent. She looks thin and sad, the dead son at her side. He keeps the pictures in a jar under his bed, very tightly sealed. We fall asleep without kissing. Later I wake up, and so does he. I ask him if he's going back to his place, and he says no. The next time I wake up, he doesn't. In the cold and darkness of this room, he could be almost anybody. I lift his meaty hand. It is heavy and has flour under each nail. Sometimes at night I kiss his knuckles, crinkled as prunes. His hands have tasted of crackers and bread the whole three years we've been together. He does not talk to me, or Ana Iris, as he dresses. In his top jacket pocket, he carries a blue disposable razor that has begun to show rust on its sharp lip. He soaps his cheeks and chin, the water cold from the pipes, and then scrapes his face clean.
trading stubble for scabs. I watch, my naked chest covered with goosebumps. He stomps downstairs and out of the house, a bit of toothpaste on his teeth. As soon as he leaves, I can hear my housemates complaining about him. Doesn't he have his own place to sleep? They'll ask me when I go into the kitchen. And I'll say, yes, and smile. From the frosted window, I watch him pull up his hood and hitch the triple layer of shirt, sweater, and coat onto his shoulders. Anna Edie kicks back her covers. What are you doing, she asks me. Nothing, I say. She watches me dress from under the craziness of her hair. You have to learn to trust your men, she says. I trust. She kisses my nose, heads downstairs. I comb out my hair, sweep the crumbs and pubic hair from my covers. Anna Edis doesn't think he'll leave me. She thinks he's too settled here, that we've been together too long. He's the sort of man who'll go to the airport but won't be able to get on board, she says. Anna Edis left her own children back on the island, hasn't seen her three boys in nearly seven years. She understands what has to be sacrificed on a voyage. In the bathroom, I stare into my own eyes. His stubble quivers in beads of water, compass needles. I work two blocks away at St. Peter's Hospital. Never late, never leave the laundry room, never leave the heat. I load washers, I load dryers, peel the lint skin from the traps, measure out heaping scoops of crystal detergent. I'm in charge of four other workers. I make an American wage, but it's a donkey job. I sort through piles of sheets with glove hands. The dirties are brought down by orderlies, morenas mostly. I never see the sick. They visit me through the stains and marks they leave on the sheets, the alphabet of the sick and dying. A lot of the time, the stains are too deep, and I have to throw these linens in the special hamper. One of the girls from Baitoa tells me she's heard that everything in the hamper gets incinerated. Because of the sida, she whispers. Sometimes the stains are rusty and old, and sometimes the blood smells sharp as rain. You'd think, given the blood we see, that there's a great war going on out in the world. Just the one inside of bodies, the new girl says. My girls are not exactly reliable, but I enjoy working with them. They play music, they feud, they tell me funny stories. And because I don't yell or bully them, they like me. They're young, sent to the States by their parents, the same age I was when I arrived. They see me now, 28, five years here, as a veteran, a rock. But back then, in those first days, I was so alone that every day was like eating my own heart. A few of the girls have boyfriends, and they're the ones I'm careful about depending on. They show up late or miss weeks at a time. They move to Nueva York or Union City without warning. When that happens, I have to go to the manager's office. He's a little man, a thin man, a bird-looking man, has no hair on his face, but a thatch grows on his chest and up his neck. I tell him what happened, and he pulls the girl's application and rips it in half, the cleanest of sounds. In less than an hour, one of the other girls has sent a friend to me for an application. The newest girl's called Samantha, and she's a problem. She's dark and heavy-browed and has a mouth like unswept glass. When you least expect it, 
she cuts you. Walked onto the job after one of the other girls ran off to Delaware. She's been in the States only six weeks and can't believe the cold. Twice she's tipped over the detergent barrels, and she has a bad habit of working without gloves and then rubbing her eyes. She tells me that she's been sick, that she's had to move twice, that her housemates have stolen her money. She has the scared, hunted look of the unlucky. Work is work, I tell her, but I loan her enough for her lunches, let her do personal laundry in our machines. I expect her to thank me, but instead she says that I talk like a man. Does it get any better? I hear her ask the others. Just worse, they say. Wait for the freezing rain. She looks over at me, half-smiling, uncertain. She's fifteen, maybe, and too thin to have mothered a child, but she's already shown me the pictures of her fat boy, Manolo. She's waiting for me to answer, me in particular because I'm the veterana, but I turn to the next load. I've tried to explain to her the trick of working hard, but she doesn't seem to care. She cracks her gum and smiles at me like I'm seventy. I unfold the next sheet, and like a flower the blood stains there, no bigger than my hand. Hamper, I say, and Samantha throws it open. I ball the sheet up and toss, slops right in, the loose ends dragged in by the center. Nine hours of smooth and linen, and I am home, eating cold yucca with hot oil, waiting for Ramon to come for me in the car he has borrowed. He has taken me to look at another house. It's been his dream since he first set foot in the States, and now, with all the jobs he's had and the money he's saved, it's possible. How many get to this point? Only the ones who never swerve, who never make mistakes, who are never unlucky. And that, more or less, is Ramon. He's serious about the house, which means I have to be serious about it too. Each week we go out into the world and look. He makes an event of it, dressing like he's interviewing for a visa, drives us around the quieter sections of Patterson, where the trees have spread over roofs and garages. It's important, he says, to be careful, and I agree. He takes me with him whenever he can, but even I can tell that I'm not much help. I'm not one for change, I tell him, and I see only what's wrong with the places he wants, and later in the car he accuses me of sabotaging his dreams, of being dura. Tonight we're supposed to see another. He walks into the kitchen, clapping his chapped hands, but I'm in no mood, and he can tell. He sits down next to me. He puts his hand on my knee. You're not going? I'm sick. How sick? Bad enough. He rubs at his stubble. What if I find the place? You wouldn't want me to make the decision myself. I don't think it will happen. And if it does? You know you'll never move me there. He scowls. He checks the clock. He leaves. Anaides is working her second job, so I spend my evening alone, listening to this whole country going cold on the radio. I try to keep still, but by nine I have the things he stores in my closet spread before me, the things he tells me never to touch, his books and some of his clothes, an old pair of glasses in a cardboard case, and two beaten chancletas, hundreds of dead lottery tickets crimped together in thick wads that fall apart at the touch, dozens of baseball cards, Dominican players, Guzman, Fernandez, Dialuz, 
swatting balls, winding up, and fielding hard line drives just beyond the baseline. He has left me some of his dirties to wash, but I haven't had the time, and tonight I lay them out, the yeast still strong on the cuffs of his pants and work shirts. In a box on the top shelf of the closet, he has a stack of Vita's letters, clinched in a fat brown rubber band. Nearly eight years' worth. Each envelope is worn and frail, and I think he's forgotten they're here. I found them a month after he stored his things, right at the start of our relationship. Couldn't resist. And afterward, I wish I had. He claims that he stopped writing her the year before. But that's not true. Every month I drop by his apartment with his laundry and read the new letters she has sent, the ones he stashes under his bed. I know Virta's name, her address. I know she works at a chocolate factory. I know that he hasn't told her about me. The letters have grown beautiful over the years, and now the handwriting has changed as well. Each letter loops down, drooping into the next line like a rudder. Please, please, mi querido husband, tell me what it is. How long did it take before your wife stopped mattering? After reading her letters, I always feel better. I don't think this says good things about me. We are not here for fun, Anaides told me the day we met, and I said, yes, you're right, even though I did not want to admit it. Today I say these same things to Samantha, and she looks at me with hatred. This morning, when I arrived at the job, I found her in the bathroom crying, and I wish I could let her rest for an hour, but we don't have those kinds of bosses. I put her on the folding, and now her hands are shaking, and she looks like she's going to cry again. I watch her for a long time, and then I ask her, what's wrong? And she says, what isn't wrong? This, Anaides said, is not an easy country. A lot of girls don't make it through their first year. You need to concentrate on work, I tell Samantha. It helps. She nods, her little girl's face vacant. It is probably her son she misses, or the father, or our whole country, which you never think of until it's gone, which you never love until you're no longer there. I squeeze her arm and go upstairs to report in, and when I come back, she's gone. The other girls pretend not to notice. I check the bathroom, find a bunch of crumpled up paper towels on the floor. I smooth them out and put them on the edge of the sink. Even after lunch, I keep expecting her to walk in and say, Here I am. I just went for a stroll. The truth is, I am lucky to have a friend like Anaides. She's like my sister. Most of the people I know in the States have no friends here. They're crowded together in apartments. They're cold. They're lonely. They're worn. I've seen the lines at the phone places, the men who sell stolen card numbers, the cuarto they carry in their pockets. When I first reached the States, I was like that, alone, living over a bar with nine other women. At night, no one could go to bed because of the screams and the exploding bottles from downstairs. Most of my housemates were fighting with each other over who owed who what or who had stolen money. When I myself had extra, I went to the phones and called my mother just so I could hear the voices of the people in my barrio as they passed the phone from hand to hand, like I was good luck. 
I was working for Ramon at the time. We weren't going out yet. That wouldn't happen for another two years. He had a housekeeping geese then, mostly in Piscataway. The day we met, he looked at me critically. Which pueblo are you from? Moca. Mata dictador, he said. And then, a little while later, he asked me which team I supported. Aguilas, I told him, not really caring. Lise, he boomed, the only real team on the island. That was the same voice he used to tell me to swab a toilet or scrub an oven. I didn't like him then. He was too arrogant and too loud, and I took to humming when I heard him discussing fees with the owners of the houses. But at least he didn't try to rape you like many of the other bosses. At least there was that. He kept his eyes and his hands mostly to himself. He had other plans, important plans, he told us, and just watching him, you could believe it. My first months were house cleaning and listening to Ramon argue. My first months were taking long walks through the city and waiting for Sunday to call my mother. During the day, I stood in front of mirrors in those great houses and told myself that I'd done well. And afterward, I would come home and fold up in front of the small television we crowded around, and I believed this was enough. I met Ana Iris after Ramon's business failed. Not enough ricos around here, he said, without discouragement. Some friends set up the meeting, and I met her at the fish market. Anaidis was cutting and preparing fish as we spoke. I thought she was a Boricua, but later she told me she was half Boricua, half Dominicana. The best of the Caribbean, and the worst, she said. She had fast, accurate hands, and her fillets were not ragged as were some of the others on the bed of crushed ice. Can you work at a hospital, she wanted to know. I can do anything, I said. There'll be blood. If you can do that, I can work in a hospital. She was the one who took the first pictures that I mailed home. Weak photos of me grinning, well-dressed and uncertain. One in front of the McDonald's, because I knew my mother would appreciate how American it was. Another one in a bookstore. I'm pretending to read even though the book is in English. My hair is pinned up, and the skin behind my ears looks pale and underused. I'm so skinny, I look sick. The best picture is of me in front of a building at the university. There are no students, but hundreds of metal folding chairs have been arranged in front of the building for an event, and I'm facing those chairs, and they're facing me, and in the light my hands are startling on the blue fabric of my dress. Three nights a week, we look at houses. The houses are in terrible condition. They are homes for ghosts and for cockroaches and for us, los hispanos. Even so, few people will sell to us. They treat us well enough in person, but in the end, we never hear from them. And the next time Ramon drives by, other people are living there, usually blanquitos, tending the lawn that should have been ours, scaring crows out of our mulberry trees. Today a grandfather, with red tints in his gray hair, tells us he likes us. He served in our country during the Guerra Civil. Nice people, he says. Beautiful people. The house is not entirely a ruin, and we're both nervous. Ramon stalks about like a cat searching for a place to whelp. He steps into closets and bangs against walls, and spends close to five minutes running his finger around the basement's wet seams, 
He smells the air for a hint of mold. In the bathroom, I flush the toilet while he holds his hand under the full torrent of the shower. We both search the kitchen cabinets for roaches. In the next room, the grandfather calls our references and laughs at something somebody has said. He hangs up and says something to Ramon that I don't understand. With these people, I cannot even rely on their voices. The Blancos will call your mother a puta in the same voice they greet you with. I wait without hoping until Ramon leans close and tells me it looks good. That's wonderful, I say. Still sure Ramon will change his mind. He trusts very little. Out in the car, he starts in, certain that the old man is trying to trick him. Why? Did you see something wrong? They make it look good. That's part of the trick. You watch. In two weeks, the roof will start falling in. Won't he fix it? He says he will. But would you trust an old man like that? I'm surprised that viejo can still get around. We say nothing more. He screws his head down into his shoulders, and the cords in his neck pop out. I know he will yell if I talk. He stops at the house, the tire sliding on the snow. Do you work tonight, I ask? Of course I do. He settles back into the Buick, tired. The windshield is streaked and sooty, and the margins that the wipers cannot reach have a crust of dirt on them. We watch two kids pound a third with snowballs, and I feel Ramon sadden, and I know he's thinking about his son, and right then I want to put my arm around him, tell him it will be fine. Will you be coming by? Depends on how the work goes. Okay, I say. My housemates trade phony smiles over the greasy tablecloth when I tell them about the house. Sounds like you're going to be bien cómoda, Marisol says. No worries for you. None at all. You should be proud. Yes, I say. Later I lie in bed and listen to the trucks outside, their beds rattling with salt and sand. In the middle of the night I wake up and realize that he has not returned, but not until morning am I angry. Anaidis's bed is made, the netting folded neatly at its foot, a gauze. I hear her gargling in the bathroom. My hands and feet are blue from the cold, and I cannot see through the window for the frost and icicles. When Anaidis starts praying, I say, Please, just not today. She lowers her hands. I dress. He's talking again about the man who fell from the rafters. What would you do if that was me, he asks once more. I would find another man, I tell him. He smiles. Would you? Where would you find one? You have friends, don't you? What man would touch a dead man's novia? I don't know, I said. I wouldn't have to tell anyone. I could find a man the way I found you. They would be able to tell. Even the most bruto would see the death in your eyes. A person doesn't mourn forever. Some do. He kisses me. I bet you would. I'm a hard man to replace. They tell me so at work. How long did you mourn for your son? He stops kissing me. Enriquillo. I mourned him a long time. I'm still missing him. I couldn't tell that by looking at you. You don't look carefully enough. It doesn't show. I don't think. He puts his hand down at his side. You are not a clever woman. I'm just saying it doesn't show. I can see that now, he says. You are not a clever woman. 
While he sits by the window and smokes, I pull the last letter his wife wrote him out of my purse and open it in front of him. He doesn't know how brazen I can be. One sheet smelling of violet water. Please, Virta has written neatly in the center of the page. That's all. I smile at Ramon and place the letter back in the envelope. Anaides once asked me if I loved him, and I told her about the lights in my old home in the capital, how they flickered, and you never knew if they would go out or not. You put down your things, and you waited, and couldn't do anything really until the lights decided. This, I told her, is how I feel. Here is what the wife looks like. She is small, with enormous hips, and has the grave seriousness of a woman who will be called Doña before she's forty. I suspect if we were in the same life, we would not be friends. I hold up the blue hospital sheets in front of me and close my eyes, but the bloodstains float in the darkness in front of me. Can we save this one with bleach, Samantha asks. She is back, but I don't know for how much longer. I don't know why I don't fire her. Maybe because I want to give her a chance. Maybe because I want to see if she will stay or if she will go. What will this tell me? Very little, I suspect. In the bag at my feet I have his clothes, and I wash them all together with the hospital things. For a day he will smell of my job, but I know that bread is stronger than blood. I have not stopped watching for signs that he misses her. You must not think on these things, Anaides tells me. Keep them out of your mind. You don't want to go crazy from them. This is how Anaides survives here, how she keeps from losing her mind over her children, how in part we all survive here. I've seen a picture of her three sons, three little boys tumbled out in the jardin japonés, near a pine tree, smiling, the smallest a saffron blur trying to shy away from the camera. I listen to her advice, and on my way to and from work, I concentrate on the other sleepwalkers around me, the men who sweep the streets and those who stand around in the back of restaurants with uncut hair, smoking cigarettes, the people in suits who stumble from the trains. A good many will stop over at a lover's, and that is all they will think about while they're eating their cold meals at home, while they're in bed with their spouses. I think of my mother, who kept with a married man when I was seven, a man with a handsome beard and craggy cheeks, who was so black that he was called Noche by everyone who knew him. He worked stringing wires for Codetel out in the campo, but he lived in our barrio and had two children with a woman he had married in Pedernales. His wife was very pretty, and when I think of Ramon's wife, I see her, in heels, flashing yards of brown leg, a woman warmer than the air around her, una jeba buena. I do not imagine Ramon's wife as uneducated, she watches the telenovelas simply to pass the time. In her letters, she mentions a child she tends, who she loves almost as much as she had loved her own. In the beginning, when Ramon had not been gone long, she believed they could have another son, one like this Victor, her amorcito. He plays baseball like you, Virta wrote. She never mentions Enriquillo. Here... There are calamities without end, but sometimes I can clearly see us in the future, and it is good. We will live in his house, and I will cook for him, and when he leaves food out on the counter, 
I will call him a sangano. I can see myself watching him shave every morning. And at other times I see us in that house, and I see how one bright day, or a day like this, so cold your mind shifts every time the wind does, he will wake up and decide it's all wrong. He will wash his face and then turn to me. I'm sorry, he'll say. I have to leave now. Samantha comes in sick with the flu. I feel like I'm dying, she says. She drags herself from task to task. She leans against the wall to rest. She doesn't eat anything, and the day after, I have it too. I pass it to Ramon. He calls me a fool for doing so. You think I can take a day off from work, he demands. I say nothing. It will only irritate him. He never stays angry for long. He has too many other things on his mind. On Friday, he comes by to update me on the house. The old man wants to sell to us, he says. He shows me some paperwork that I do not understand. He is excited, but he is also scared. This is something I know, a place I've been. What do you think I should do? His eyes are not watching me. They're looking out the window. I think you should buy yourself a home. You deserve it. He nods. I need to break him down on the price, though. He takes out a cigarette. Do you know how long I've waited for this? To own a house in this country is to begin to live. I tried to bring up Virta, but he kills it, like always. I already told you it's over, he snaps. What else do you want? A maldito corpse? You women never know how to leave things alone. You never know how to let go. That night, Ana Iris and I go to a movie. We cannot understand the English, but we both like the new theater's clean rugs. Blue and pink neon stripes zag across the walls like lightning. We buy a popcorn to share and smuggle in cans of tamarind juice from the bodega. The people around us talk. We talk as well. You're lucky to be getting out, she says. Those cueros are driving me crazy. It's a little early for this, but I say, I'm going to miss you. And she laughs. You're on your way to another life. You won't have time to miss me. Yes, I will. I'll probably be over to visit you every day. You won't have the time. I will if I make time. Are you trying to get rid of me? Of course not, Yasmin. Don't be stupid. It won't be for a while anyway. I remember what Ramon had said over and over again. Anything can happen. We sit quietly for the rest of the movie. I have not asked her what she thinks of my move, and she has not offered her opinion. We respect each other's silences about certain things, the way I never ask if she intends to send for her children someday. I cannot tell what she will do. She has had men, and they too have slept in our room, but she never kept any for long. We walk back from the theater close together, careful of the shiny ice that scars the snow. The neighborhood is not safe. Boys who only know enough Spanish to curse stand together at the street corners and scowl. They cross into traffic without looking, and when we pass them, a fat one says, I eat pussy better than anybody in the world. Cochino, Anaides hisses, putting her hand on me. We pass the old apartment where I used to live, the one over the bar, and I stare up at it, trying to remember which window I used to stare out of. 
come on, Anaidi says. It's freezing. Ramon must have told Birta something because the letters stop. I guess it's true what they say. If you wait long enough, everything changes. As for the house, it takes longer than even I could have imagined. He almost walks away a half dozen times, slams phones, throws his drink against the wall, and I expect it to fall away, not to happen. But then, like a miracle, it does. Look, he says, holding up the paperwork. Look! He is almost pleading. I am truly happy for him. You did it, mi amor. We did it, he says quietly. Now we can begin. Then he puts his head down on the table and cries. In December, we move into the house. It's a half-ruin, and only two rooms are habitable. It resembles the first place I lived when I arrived in this country. We don't have heat for the entire winter, and for a month we have to bathe from a bucket. Casa de Campo, I call it in jest, but he doesn't take kindly to any criticism of his niño. Not everyone can own a home, he reminds me. I saved eight years for this. He works on the house ceaselessly, raiding the abandoned properties on the block for materials. Every floorboard he reclaims, he boasts, is money saved. Despite all the trees, the neighborhood is not easy, and we have to make sure to keep everything locked all the time. For a few weeks, people knock on the door, asking if the house is still for sale. Some of them are couples as hopeful as we must have looked. Ramon slams a door on them, as if afraid that they might haul him back to where they are. But when it's me, I let them down softly. It's not, I say. Good luck with your search. This is what I know. People's hopes go on forever. The hospital begins to build another wing. Three days after the cranes surround our building, as if in prayer, Samantha pulls me aside. Winter has dried her out, left her with reptile hands and lips so chapped they look like they might at any moment split. I need a loan, she whispers. My mother's sick. It's always the mother. I turn to go. Please, she begs. We're from the same country. This is true. We are. Someone must have helped you sometime. Also true. The next day I give her 800. It is half my savings. Remember this. I will, she says. She is so happy. Happier than I was when we moved into the house. I wish I could be as free. She sings for the rest of the shift. Songs from when I was younger. Adamo and that lot. But she still is Samantha. Before we punch out, she tells me, Don't wear so much lipstick. You have big enough lips as it is. Ana Edis laughs. That girl said that to you? Yes, she did. Que desgraciada, she says, not without admiration. At the end of the week, Samantha doesn't return to work. I ask around, but no one knows where she lives. I don't remember her saying anything significant on her last day. She walked out as quietly as ever, drifting down towards the center of town where she could catch her bus. I pray for her. I remember my own first year, how desperately I wanted to return home, how often I cried. I pray she stays like I did.
A week. I wait a week, and then I let her go. The girl who replaces her is quiet and fat and works without stopping or complaint. Sometimes, when I am in one of my moods, I imagine Samantha back home with her people, back home where it is warm, saying, I would never go back, not for anything, not for anyone. Some nights, when Ramon is working on the plumbing or sanding the floors, I read the old letters and sip the rum we store under the kitchen sink and think, of course, of her, the one from the other life. I am pregnant when the next letter finally arrives, sent from Ramon's old place to our new home. I pull it from the stack of mail and stare at it. My heart is beating like it's lonely, like there's nothing else inside of me. I want to open it, but I call Ana Iris instead. We haven't spoken in a long time. I stare out at the bird-filled hedges while the phone rings. I want to go out for a walk, I tell her. The buds are breaking through the tips of the branches. When I step into the old place, she kisses me and sits me down at the kitchen table. Only two of the housemates I know. The rest have moved on or gone home. There are new girls from the island. They shuffle in and out, barely look at me, exhausted by the promises they've made. I want to advise them. No promises can survive that sea. I am showing and Anna Edis is thin and worn. Her hair has not been cut in months. The split ends rise out of her thick strands like a second head of hair. She can still smile, though. So brightly it is a wonder that she doesn't set something alight. A woman is singing a bachata somewhere upstairs, and her voice in the air reminds me of the size of this house, how high the ceilings are. Here, Anna Edis says, handing me a scarf. Let's go for a walk. I hold the letter in my hands. The day is the color of pigeons. Our feet crush the bits of snow that lie scattered here and there, crusted over with gravel and dust. We wait for the mash of cars to slow at the light, and then we scuttle into the park. Our first months, Ramon and I were in this park daily. Just to wind down after work, he said, but I painted my nails red every time. I remember the day before we first made love, how I already knew it would happen. He had only just told me about his wife and about his son. I was mulling over the information, saying nothing, letting my feet guide us. We met a group of boys playing baseball, and he bullied the bat from them, cut up the air with it, sent the boys out deep. I thought he would embarrass himself, so I stood back, ready to pat his arm when he fell or when the ball dropped at his feet, but he connected with a sharp crack of the aluminum bat and sent the ball out beyond the children with an easy motion of his upper body. The children threw their hands up and yelled, and he smiled at me over their heads. We walked the length of the park without talking, and then we head back across the highway, toward downtown. She's writing again, I say, but Anna Edis interrupts me. I've been calling my children, she says. She points out the man across from the courthouse, who sells her stolen call-in card numbers. They've gotten so much older, she tells me, that it's hard for me to recognize their voices. We have to sit down after a while so that I can hold her hand and she can cry. I should say something, but I don't know where a person can start. She will bring them or she will go. That much has changed. 
It gets cold. We go home. We embrace at the door for what feels like an hour. That night, I give Ramon the letter, and I try to smile while he reads it. Flaca. Your left eye used to drift when you were tired or upset. It's looking for something, you used to say. In those days we saw each other, it fluttered and rolled, and you had to put your finger over to stop it. You were doing this when I woke up and found you on the edge of my chair. You were still in your teacher's gear, but your jacket was off, and enough buttons were open on your blouse to show me the black bra I'd bought you and the freckles on your chest. We didn't know it was the last days, but we should have. I just got here, you said, and I looked out where you'd parked your Civic. Go roll up them windows. I'm not going to be here long. Someone's going to steal it. I'm almost ready to go. You stayed in your chair, and I knew better than to move closer. You had an elaborate system that you thought would keep us out of bed. You sat on the other side of the room. You didn't let me crack your knuckles. You never stayed more than 15 minutes. It never really worked, did it? I brought you guys dinner, you said. I was making lasagna for my class, so I brought the leftovers. My room is hot and small, overrun by books. You never wanted to be in here. It's like being inside of a sock, you said. And any time the boys were away, we slept in the living room, out on the rug. Your long hair was making you sweat, and finally you took your hand away from your eye. You hadn't stopped talking. Today, I was given a new student. Her mother told me to be careful with her because she had the sight. The sight? You nod. I asked the senora if the sight helped her in school. She said, not really, but it's helped me with the numbers a few times. I'm supposed to laugh, but I stare outside where a mitten-shaped leaf had stuck to your windshield. You stand beside me. When I saw you, first in our Joyce class and then at the gym, I knew I'd call you Flaca. If you'd been Dominican, my family would have worried about you, brought plates of food to my door, heaps of platano and yuca, smothered in liver or queso frito. Flaca. Even though your name was Veronica. Veronica Hardrada. The boys will be home soon, I say. Maybe you should roll up your windows. I'm going now, you say, and put your hand back over your eye. It wasn't supposed to get serious between us. I can't see us getting married or nothing, and you nodded your head and said you understood. Then we fucked so we could pretend that nothing hurtful had just happened. This was like our fifth time together, and you got dressed in a black sheath and a pair of Mexican sandals, and you said I could call you when I wanted, but that you wouldn't call me. You have to decide where and when, you said. If you leave it up to me, I'll want to see you every day. At least you were honest, which is more than I can say for me. Weekdays I never called you, didn't even miss you. I had the boys and my job at Transactions Press to keep me busy. But Friday and Saturday nights, when I didn't meet anybody at the clubs, I called. We talked until the silences were long, until finally you asked, Do you want to see me? I'd say yes, 
and while I waited for you, I'd tell the boys, it's just sex, you know, nothing at all. And you'd come with a change of clothes and a pan so you could make us breakfast, maybe cookies you'd bake for your class. The boys would find you in the kitchen the next morning in one of my shirts, and at first they didn't complain because they guessed you would just go away. And by the time they started saying something, it was late, wasn't it? I remember the boys keeping an eye on me. They figured two years ain't no small thing, even though the entire time I never claimed you. But what was nuts was that I felt fine. I felt like summer had taken me over. I told the boys this was the best decision I'd ever made. You can't be fucking with white girls all your life. In some groups, that was more than a given. In our group, it was not. In that Joyce class, you never spoke, but I did, all the time. And once you looked at me, and I looked at you, and you turned so red, even the professor noticed. You were white trash from outside of Patterson, and it showed in your no-fashion sense, and you dated niggas a lot. I said you had a thing about us, and you said, angry, no, I do not. But you sort of did. You were the white girl who danced bachata, who pledged the SLUs, who'd gone to Santo Domingo three times already. I remember you used to offer me rides home in your Civic. I remember the third time I accepted. Our hands touched in between our seats. You tried to talk to me in Spanish, and I told you to stop. We're on speaking terms today. I say... Maybe we should go hang out with the boys, and you shake your head. I want to spend time with you, you say. If we're still good, next week maybe. That's the most we can hope for. Nothing thrown, nothing said we might remember for years. You watch me while you put a brush through your hair. Each strand that breaks is as long as my arm. You don't want to let go, but don't want to be hurt either. It's not a great place to be. But what can I tell you? We drive up to Montclair, almost alone on the parkway. Everything's quiet and dark, and the trees shine from yesterday's rain. At one point, just south of the oranges, the parkway passes through a cemetery, thousands of gravestones and cenotaphs on both sides. Imagine, you say, pointing to the nearest home, if you had to live in that place. The dreams you'd have, I say. You nod. The nightmares. We park across from the map dealer and go to our bookstore. Despite the proximity of the college, we're the only customers, us and a three-legged cat. You sit yourself down in an aisle and start searching through the boxes. The cat goes right for you. I flip through the histories. You're the only person I've ever met who can stand a bookstore as long as I can. A smarty pants, the kind you don't find every day. When I come back to you again, you have kicked off your shoes and are picking at the running calluses on your feet, reading a children's book. I put my arms around your shoulders. Flaca, I say. Your hair drifts up and clings to my stubble. I don't shave often enough for anybody. This can work, you say. We just have to let it. That last summer, you wanted to go somewhere, so I took us out to Spruce Run, 
We'd both been there as children. You could remember the years, even the months of your visit, but the closest I came was back when I was young. Look at the Queen Anne's lace, you said. You were leaning out the window into the night air, and I had my hand on your back just in case. We were both drunk, and you had nothing but garters and stockings on under your skirt, and you put my hand between your legs. What did your family do here, you asked. I looked at the night water. We had barbecues, Dominican barbecues. My pops didn't know how to, but he insisted. He would cook up this red sauce that he'd splatter on chuletas, and then he'd invite complete strangers over to eat. It was terrible. I wore an eye patch when I was a kid, you said. Maybe we met out here and fell in love over bad barbecue. I doubt it, I said. I'm just saying, Junior. Maybe 5,000 years ago we were together. 5,000 years ago, I was in Denmark. That's true, and half of me was in Africa. Doing what? Farming, I guess. That's what everybody does everywhere. Maybe we were together some other time. I can't think when, I said. You tried not to look at me. Maybe five million years ago. People weren't even people back then. That night, you lay in bed, awake, and listened to the ambulances tear down our street. The heat of your face could have kept my room warm for days. I didn't know how you stood the heat of yourself, of your breasts, of your face. I almost couldn't touch you. Out of nowhere, you said, I love you, for whatever it's worth. That was the summer I couldn't sleep, the summer I used to run through the streets of New Brunswick at four in the morning. These were the only times I broke five miles, when there was no traffic, and the halogens turned everything the color of foil, firing up every bit of moisture that was on the cars. I remember running around the memorial homes along Joyce Kilmer, past Throop, where the Camelot, that crazy old bar, stands boarded and burned. I stayed up entire nights, and when the old man came home from UPS, I was writing down the times as the trains arrived from Princeton Junction. You could hear them breaking from our living room, a gnash just south of my heart. I figured this staying up meant something. Maybe it was loss, or love, or some other word that we say when it's too fucking late, but the boys weren't into melodrama. They heard that shit and said no, especially the old man. Divorced at 20, with two kids down in D.C., neither of which he sees anymore. He heard me and said, Listen, there are 44 ways to get over this. He showed me his bitten-up hands. We went back to Spruce Run, once more. Do you remember? When the fight seemed to go on and on and always ended with us in bed, tearing at each other like maybe that could change everything. In a couple of months, you'd be seeing somebody else, and I would too. She was no darker than you, but she washed her panties in the shower and had hair like a sea of little puños, and the first time you saw us, you turned around and boarded a bus I knew you didn't have to take. When my girl said, who was that? I said, just some girl. That second trip, I stood on the beach and watched you wade out, watched you rub the lake on your skinny arms and neck. 
Both of us were hungover, and I didn't want any of me wet. There's a cure in the waters, you explained. The priest announced it at service. You were saving some in a bottle. For your cousin with leukemia and your aunt with the bad heart. You had on a bikini bottom and a t-shirt, and there was a mist sifting down over the hills and lacing the trees. You went out to your waist and stopped. I was staring at you, and you were staring at me. And right then, it was sort of like love, wasn't it? That night, you came into my bed, too thin to be believed. And when I tried to kiss your nipples, you put a hand across my chest. Wait, you said. Downstairs, the boys were watching TV, screaming. You let the water dribble out of your mouth, and it was cold. You reached my knees before you had to refill from the bottle. I listened to your breathing, how slight it was, listened to the sound the water made in the bottle, and then you covered my face and my crotch and my back. You whispered my full name, and we fell asleep in each other's arms, and I remember how the next morning you were gone, completely gone, and nothing in my bed or the house could have proven otherwise. The Pura Principle Those last months, no way of wrapping it pretty or pretending otherwise. Rafa was dying. By then it was only me and Mommy taking care of him, and we didn't know what the fuck to do, what the fuck to say, so we just said nothing. My mom wasn't the effusive type anyway, had one of those event horizon personalities. Shit just fell into her, and you never really knew how she felt about it. She just seemed to take it, never gave anything off, not light, not heat. Me, I wouldn't have wanted to talk about it even if she had been game. The few times my boys at school tried to bring it up, I told them to mind their own fucking business, to get out of my face. I was seventeen and a half, smoking so much bud that if I remembered an hour from any of those days, it would have been a lot. My mother was checked out in her own way. She wore herself down. Between my brother and the factory and taking care of the household, I'm not sure she slept. I didn't lift a fucking finger in our apartment. Male privilege, baby. Ladies still managed to scrounge a couple hours here and there to hang with her new main man, Jehovah. I had my jerba, she had hers. She'd never been big on church before, but as soon as we landed on Cancer Planet, she went so over-the-top Jesucristo that I think she would have nailed herself to a cross if she'd had one handy. That last year, she was especially Ave Maria, had her prayer group over to our apartment two, three times a day. The four horse faces of the apocalypse, I called them. The youngest and the most horse face was Gladys, diagnosed with breast cancer the year before, and right in the middle of her treatment, her evil husband had run off to Colombia and married one of her cousins. Hallelujah! Another lady, whose name I could never remember, was only 45 but looked 90, a complete ghetto wreck, overweight, with a bad back, bad kidneys, bad knees, diabetes, and maybe sciatica. Hallelujah! 
The chief rocker, though, was Doña Rosy, our upstairs neighbor, this real nice Boricua lady, happiest person you've ever seen, even though she was blind. Hallelujah. You had to be careful with her because she had a habit of sitting down without even checking if there was anything remotely chair-like underneath her. And twice already, she'd missed the couch and busted her ass. The last time hollering, Dios mío, ¿qué me has hecho? And I had to drag myself out of the basement to help her to her feet. These viejas were my mother's only friends. Even our relatives had gotten scarce after year two. And when they were over was the only time mommy seemed somewhat like her old self. Loved to tell her stupid campo jokes. Wouldn't serve them coffee until she was sure each tacita contained the exact same amount. And when one of the four was fooling herself, she let her know it with a simple, extended, bueno. The rest of the time, she was beyond inscrutable, in perpetual motion, cleaning, organizing, cooking meals, going to the store to return this, pick up that. The few occasions I saw her pause, she would put a hand over her eyes, and that was when I knew she was exhausted. But of all of us, Rafa took the cake. When he'd come home from the hospital the second go-around, he fronted like nothing had happened, which was nuts considering that half the time he didn't know where the fuck he was because of what the radiation had done to his brain, and the other half, he was too tired to even fart. Dude had lost 80 pounds to the chemo, looked like a break-dancing ghoul. My brother was the last motherfucker in the jurors to give up his tracksuit and rope chain, had a back laced with spinal tap scars, but his swagger was more or less where it had been before the illness. A hundred percent loco. He prided himself on being the neighborhood lunatic. Wasn't gonna let a little thing like cancer get in the way of his official duties. Not a week out of the hospital, he cracked this illegal Peruvian kid in the face with a hammer and two hours later threw down at the path mark because he thought some fool was talking shit about him, popped said fool in the pie hole with a weak overhand right before a bunch of us could break it up. What the fuck, he kept yelling, as if we were doing the craziest thing ever. The bruises he gave himself fighting us were purple buzzsaws, infant hurricanes. Dude was figurando hard, had always been a papichulo, so of course he dove right back into the grip of his old sucias, snuck them down into the basement whether my mother was home or not. Once, right in the middle of one of mommy's prayer sessions, he strolled in with this Parkwood girl who had the hugest donkey on the planet, and later I said, Rafa, un chin de repeto. He shrugged. Can't let them think I'm slipping. He'd hang out at Honda Hill and come home so garbled that he sounded as if he was speaking Aramaic. Anybody who didn't know better would have thought homeboy was on the mend. I'll put the weight back on. You'll see, was what he told folks. Had my mother making him all these nasty protein shakes. Mommy tried to keep his ass home. Remember what your doctor said, hijo. But he just said... Tato, mami, tato, and danced right out the door. 
she never could control him. With me, she yelled and cursed and hit. But with him, she sounded as if she was auditioning for a role in a Mexican novela. Ay, mijito, ay, mi tesoro. I was all focused on this little white girl in Cheesequake, but I tried to get him to slow his roll too. Yo, shouldn't you be convalescing or something? But he just stared at me with his dead eyes. Anyway, after a few weeks on overdrive, motherfucker hit a wall, developed his dynamite cough from being out all night, and ended up back at the hospital for two days, which after his last stint, eight months, didn't really count as nothing. And when he got out, you could see the change. Stopped breaking night and drinking until he puked. Stop with the iceberg slim thing, too. No more chicks crying over him on the couch or gobbling the rabo downstairs. The only one who hung tough was this ex of his, Tammy Franco, whom he'd pretty much physically abused their whole relationship. Bad, too. A two-year-long public service announcement. He'd get so mad at her sometimes that he dragged her around the parking lot by her hair. Once. Her pants came unbuttoned and got yanked down to her ankles, and we could all see her toto and everything. That was the image I still had of her. After my brother, she had hopped on a white boy and gotten married faster than you could say I do. A beautiful girl. You remember that Jose Tinga jam, Fly Tetas? That was Tammy. Married and beautiful and still after my brother. What was strange was that on the days she dropped by, she wouldn't come into the apartment, not at all. She'd pull her Camry up front, and he would go out and sit with her in the bitch seat. I'd just started summer vacation, and while I waited for the white girl to answer my phone calls, I'd watch them from the kitchen window, waiting for him to palm her head down into his lap, but nothing like that ever happened. It didn't even look like they were talking. After 15 20 minutes, he'd climb out and she'd drive away and that would be that. What the fuck you guys doing? Trading brainwaves? He was fingering his molars. The radiation had cost him two already. Ain't she, like, married to some Polak? Doesn't she have, like, two kids? He looked at me. What the fuck do you know? Nothing. Nothing at all. Entonces, cállate la fucking boca. So this was where he should have been from the start. Taking it easy. Hanging around the crib. Smoking all my weed. I had to hide my puffing while he twisted his joints right in the living room. Watching the tube. Sleeping. Mommy was ecstatic. She even beamed every now and then told her group that Dios Santísimo had answered her prayers. Alabanza, Doña Rosy said, her eyes rolling around like marbles. I sat with him sometimes when the Mets were playing, and he wouldn't say a word about how he was feeling, what he was expecting to happen. It was only when he was in bed, dizzy or nauseous, that I'd hear him groaning, What the hell is happening? What do I do? What do I do?
I should have known it was the calm before the storm. Not two weeks after he recovered from the cough, he disappeared for almost the whole day, then rolled into the apartment and announced that he had scored himself a part-time job. A part-time job, I asked? Are you fucking nuts? A man has to stay busy. He grinned, showed us all the gaps. Gotta make myself useful. It was at the yarn barn of all places. At first, my mom pretended to wash her hands of him. You want to kill yourself? Kill yourself. But later, I heard her trying to talk to him in the kitchen, a low, monotonous appeal until my brother said, Ma, how about you leave me alone, yeah? Talk about a total mystery. Wasn't like my brother had some incredible work ethic that needed exercising. The only job Rafa had ever had was pumping to the Old Bridge white kids, and even on that front he'd been super chill. If he wanted to keep busy, he could have gone back to that. It would have been easy, and I told him so. We still knew a lot of white kids over in Cliffwood Beach and Lawrence Harbor, a whole dirtbag clientele, but he wouldn't do it. What kind of legacy is that? Legacy? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Bro, you're working at the yarn barn. Better than being a dealer. Anybody can do that. And selling yarn? That's only for the giants? He put his hands on his lap, stared at them. You live your life, Junior. I'll live mine. My brother had never been the most rational of agents, but this one was the ill zinger. I chalked it up to boredom, to those eight months he had spent in the hospital, to the medicine he was taking. Maybe he just wanted to feel normal. In all honesty, he seemed pretty excited about the whole thing. Dressed up to go to the job, delicately combed that once great head of hair that had grown back sparse and pubic after the chemo, Gave himself plenty of time, too. Can't be late. Every time he headed out, my mother would slam the door behind him, and if the Hallelujah crew was available, they'd all be at their rosaries. I might have been zooted out of my gourd most of the time, or chasing that girl over in Cheesequake, but I still managed to drop in on him a few times just to be sure he wasn't face down in the mohair aisle. A surreal sight. The hardest dude in the nib chasing price checks like a herb. I never stayed longer than it took to confirm that he was still alive. He pretended not to see me. I pretended not to have been seen. When he brought home his first check, he threw the money on the table and laughed. I'm making bank, baby. Oh, yeah, I said. You're killing it. Still, Later that night, I asked him for 20. He looked at me and then gave it over. I jumped in the car and drove out to where Laura was supposed to be hanging with some friends, but by the time I arrived, she was gone. That job nonsense didn't last. I mean, how could it? After about three weeks of making the fat white ladies nervous with his skeletal self, he started forgetting shit getting disoriented, 
handing customers the wrong change, cursing people out. And finally, he just sat down in the middle of an aisle and couldn't get up. Too sick to drive himself home, so the job people called the apartment got me right out of bed. I found him sitting in the office, his head hanging, and when I helped him to his feet, the Spanish girl who was taking care of him started bawling as if I was leading him off to the gas chamber. He had a fever like a motherfucker. I could feel the heat through the denim of his apron. Jesus, Rafa, I said. He didn't lift his eyes, mumbled, no fuimo. He stretched out on the back seat of his monarch while I drove us home. I feel like I'm dying, he said. You ain't dying, but if you do kick it, leave me the ride, okay? I'm not leaving this baby to nobody. I'm going to be buried in it. In this piece of crap? Yup, with my TV and my boxing gloves. What, you a pharaoh now? He raised his thumb in the air. Bury your slave ass in the trunk. The fever lasted two days, but it took a week before he was close to better, before he was spending more time on the couch than in bed. I was convinced that as soon as he was mobile, he was going to head right back to the yarn barn or try to join the Marines or something. My mother feared the same, told him every chance she got that it wasn't going to happen. I won't allow it. Her eyes were shining behind her black Madres de Plaza de Mayo glasses. I won't. Me, your mother, will not allow it. Leave me alone, ma. Leave me alone. You could tell he was going to pull something stupid. The good thing was he didn't try to go back to the barn. The bad thing was that he went and basically got married. Remember the Spanish chick, the one who'd been crying over him at the yarn barn? Well, it turns out she was actually Dominican. Not Dominican like my brother or me, but Dominican Dominican, as in fresh off the boat, didn't have no papers Dominican, and thick as fucking shit. Before Rafa was even better, she started coming around, all solicitous and eager, would sit with him on the couch and watch Telemundo. I don't have a TV, she announced at least 20 times. Lived in London Terrace 2, over in Building 22, with her little son, Adrian, stuck in a tiny room she was renting from this older Gujarati guy, so it wasn't exactly a hardship for her to hang out with, as she put it, her gente. Even though she was trying to be all proper, keeping her legs crossed, calling my mother Senora, Rafa was on her like an octopus. By visit five, he was taking her down to the basement, whether the Hallelujah crew was around or not. Pura was her name. Pura Adames. Pura Mierda was what mommy called her. Okay, for the record, I didn't think Pura was so bad. She was a hell of a lot better than most of the hoes my brother had brought around. Guapissima as hell. Tall and in the acita with huge feet and an incredibly soulful face. But unlike your average hood hottie, Buddha seemed not to know what to do with her fineness, was sincerely lost in all the pulchritude. A total campesina, 
from the way she held herself down to the way she talked, which was so demotic I couldn't understand half of what she said. She used words like de guabinao and estribao on the regular. She'd talk your ear off if you let her and was way too honest. Within a week, she told us her whole life story, how her father had died when she was young, how for an undisclosed sum her mother had married her off at 13 to a stingy 50-year-old, which was how she had got her first son, Nestor, how, after a couple of years of that terribleness, she got the chance to jump from La Mata de Fanfan to Newark, brought over by a tia who wanted her to take care of her retarded son and bedridden husband, how she had run away from her too because she hadn't come to Nueva York to be a slave to anybody, not anymore, how she had spent the next four years more or less being blown along on the winds of necessity, passing through Newark, Elizabeth, Patterson, Union City, Perth Amboy, where some crazy Cubano knocked her up with her second son, Adrian, everybody taking advantage of her good nature. And now, here she was in London Terrace, trying to stay afloat, looking for her next break. She smiled brightly on my brother when she said that. They don't really marry girls off like that in the DR, do they, Ma? Por favor, Mommy said. Don't believe anything that puta tells you. But a week later, she and the horse faces were lamenting how often that happened in the campo, how Mommy herself had had to fight to keep her own crazy mother from trading her for a pair of goats. Now my mother, she had a simple policy when it came to my brother's amiguitas. Since none of them were ever going to last, she didn't even bother to learn their names paid them no more heed than she'd paid our cats back in the DR. Mommy wasn't mean to them or anything. If a girl said hi, she would say hi back, and if a girl was courteous, Mommy would return the courtesy. But the vieja didn't expend more than a watt of herself. She was unwaveringly, punishingly indifferent. Buddha, man, was another story. Right from the beginning, it was clear that Mommy did not like this girl. It wasn't just that Buddha was mad obvious, dropping hints nonstop about her immigration status, how her life would be so much better, how her son's life would be so much better, how she would finally be able to visit her poor mother and her other son in La Mata if only she had papers. Mommy had dealt with paper bitches before, and she never got this pissy. Something about Buddha's face, her timing, her personality, just drove Mommy batshit. Felt real personal. Or maybe Mommy had a presentiment of what was to come. Whatever it was, my mother was super evil to Buddha. If she wasn't getting on her about the way she talked, the way she dressed, how she ate with her mouth open how she walked, about her campesinaness, about her prietaness, mommy would pretend that she was invisible, would walk right through her, pushing her aside, ignoring her most basic questions. If she had to refer to Buddha at all, it was to say something like, Rafa, what would Buddha like to eat? Even I was like, Jesus, mom, 
What the fuck? But what made it all the iller was that Buddha seemed completely oblivious to the hostility. No matter how mommy acted or what mommy said, Buddha kept trying to chat mommy up. Instead of shrinking Buddha, mommy's bitchiness seemed only to make her more present. When she and Rafa were alone, Buddha was pretty quiet. But when mommy was around, homegirl had an opinion about everything, jumped in on every conversation, said shit that made no sense, like that the capital of the United States was New York City or that there were only three continents, and then would defend it to the death. You'd think with mommy stalking her, she'd be careful and restrained, but nope. The girl took liberties. Búscame algo para comer, she'd say to me. No please or nothing. If I didn't get her what she wanted, she would help herself to sodas or flan. My mother would take food out of Buddha's hands, but as soon as mommy turned around, Buddha would be back in the fridge helping herself. Even told mommy that she should paint the apartment. You need color in here. Esta sala está muerta. I shouldn't laugh, but it was all kind of funny. And the horse faces? They could have moderated things a little, don't you think? But they were like, fuck that. What are friendships for if not for instigating? They beat the anti-Buddha drums daily. Ella es prieta. Ella es fea. Ella dejó un hijo en Santo Domingo. Ella tiene otro aquí. No tiene hombre. No tiene dinero. No tiene papeles. ¿Qué tú crees que ella busca por aquí? They menaced mommy with the scenario of Buddha getting pregnant with my brother's citizen sperm and mommy having to support her and her kids and her people in Santo Domingo forever. And mommy, the same woman who now prayed to God on a Mecca timetable, told the horse faces that if that happened, she'd cut the baby out of Buddha herself. Ten mucho cuidado, she said to my brother. I don't want a mono in this house. Too late, Rafa said, eyeing me. My brother could have made life easier by not having Buddha over so much or by limiting her to when mommy was at the factory. But when had he ever done the reasonable thing? He'd sit on the couch in the middle of all that tension and he actually seemed to be enjoying himself. Did he like her as much as he was claiming? Hard to say. He was definitely more caballero with Pura than he'd been with his other girls, opening doors, talking all polite, even making nice with her cross-eyed boy. A lot of his ex-girls would have died to see this Rafa. This was the Rafa they'd all been waiting for. Romeo or not, I still didn't think the relationship was going to last. I mean, my brother never kept a girl. Ever. Dude had thrown away bitches better than Buddha on the regular. And that was the way it seemed to go. After a month or so, Buddha just disappeared. My mom didn't celebrate or anything, but she wasn't unhappy either. A couple of weeks after that, though, my brother disappeared took the monarch 
and vanished. Gone for one day, gone for two. By then, Mommy was starting to flip seriously out. Had the four horse faces putting out an APB on the God line. I was starting to worry, too, remembering that when he was first diagnosed, he jumped into his ride and tried to drive to Miami where he had some boy or another. He hadn't made it past Philly before his car broke down. I got worried enough that I walked over to Tammy Franco's house, but when her Polak husband answered the door, I lost my nerve. I turned around and walked away. On the third night, we were in the apartment just waiting when the monarch pulled up. My mother ran over to the window, holding the curtains until her knuckles were white. He's here, she said finally. Rafa stomped in with Buddha in tow. He was clearly drunk, and Buddha was dressed as if they'd just been at a club. Welcome home, Mommy said quietly. Check it out, Rafa said, holding out both his and Buddha's hands. They had rings on. We got married. It's official, Buddha said, giddily, pulling the license from her purse. My mother went from annoyed relieved to utterly unreadable. Is she pregnant? she asked. Not yet, Buddha said. Is she pregnant? My mother looked straight at my brother. No, Rafa said. Let's have a drink, my brother said. My mother said, no one is drinking in my house. I'm having a drink. My brother walked toward the kitchen, but my mother stiff-armed him. Ma, Rafa said, no one is drinking in this house. She pushed Rafa back. If this, she threw her hand in Buddha's direction,